0: church. Let's grab our Bibles out. We're in Revelation chapter 15 this morning. We're going to finish up this 15th chapter here, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, recognizing, of course, that the scriptures are the inerrant word, the infallible word of the only true and living God. So when we read the scriptures, it is as though the Lord is speaking to us. In fact, he has spoken to us authoritatively so in the written scriptures. Revelation chapter 15 verses 5 through 8. Listen now to the word of God. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. I'm hesitant to tell you what my phobia is, lest you use it against me. But I've come to trust you now over these four years. and My, my children think it's funny. But I think straw wrappers are a serious matter. Uh, they bother me. Does anyone else grossed out by straw wrappers? It's my phobia. It goes back to the spitwad incident of 1985 in Richardson Elementary School. I can't speak about that right now. But they freak me out. And I'm sure that there's something that bothers you too, probably an irrational fear of of some sort. There's rational fears and there's irrational fears. Mine is a bit irrational, I understand. Maybe you're afraid of needles. Anybody afraid of needles, long needles? You like to get your blood drawn? Probably not. I don't like that either. Some of you are maybe afraid of spiders or snakes, or maybe the last thing you would want to ever happen to you is for your secret to be exposed. Maybe there's something about you that's true. And your greatest fear is that somehow that secret would become known and it would become, become public. Others are afraid of public speaking. You would dread to trade places with me today. I understand that. Um, some of us are afraid of our governments, increasingly so. And there are certainly some things that are strange in our time today that make me a little bit more afraid of our government than I used to be. Death is something that bothers many people as well. That's not an irrational fear, though. That's a rational fear because it's certainly true that every one of us is going to die at some point. I bring this up, fears rational and irrational, only to mention that the most rational fear of all is the fear of the wrath of God, which by this point in the book of Revelation, you're probably discovering is one of the major themes of this book. In fact, it's unavoidable at this point that we must begin to talk more and more about the wrath of God. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, this book of Revelation was really fun back when we were playing pin the tail on the Antichrist, and we were talking about some of these really neat things that Christians love to debate amongst themselves. What does the number 666 mean and so forth? Those were interesting passages, but now we're coming down to some of these darker passages in the book of Revelation in which we cannot avoid discussing the wrath of God. In fact, it's right here in this text, and so that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the most rational fear of all, which is the wrath of God. I would rather have every form of cancer than to have to face up to the wrath of God. Look at it. It's right here in your Bible. I hope you have your Bible open Revelation chapter 15, verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You don't want to face that. I know you don't. I don't either. Let's define the wrath of God, if you will, at the beginning of the sermon this morning. God's wrath is something like his holy, righteous anger at sin, which he will one day pour out in global and personal catastrophe on the unatoned. I'm going to say that again, just for emphasis. God's wrath is His holy and righteous anger, which He will one day pour out, both globally and personally, this, this anger at sin on the unatoned. Now, with that in mind, let me do a little bit of homework here as we just kind of set up this text that we have before us today. Look at your Bible in Revelation chapter 15. Notice that this paragraph that we're looking at today is something of a transitionary passage which in one sense is very foundational to what's going to come next week in chapter 16 when we get to the seven bowls of God's wrath. a most serious passage, in fact. Uh, The seven bowls of God's wrath are going to finish up the 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 sequential sevens that we've had throughout this book. And there's been a number of very important sevens that we've looked at. Now, I'm not saying that seven's never going to come up again. The, The number seven is for sure. But we've looked at the, uh, the seven letters at the very beginning, we've looked at the seven seals, we've looked at the seven trumpets, we just saw seven angels, and now seven bold judgments of God's wrath are going to come forth. And so this kind of finishes that up. Now, the purpose of today's passage, though, serves as a theological foundation for the seven bold judgments that are going to come in chapter 16. So we have to look here then, especially at this idea of the wrath of God, because that's what we're going to see being poured out. And as I've told you already, it is the most rational and real fear that we should sustain as creatures, fear that the wrath of God would come upon us. So David's job in the next two weeks, I'm going to be away in the Peru mission trip, David's job will be to work through these seven bull judgments that are coming in chapter 16. Now, backing up even a little bit further, don't forget that John has introduced to us now these enemies of the Christian church, and he's done so in a particular order. He introduced first the dragon, and then the the beast, and then the false prophet, and then Babylon, or the harlot. As we continue to work through after the judgments of the bulls come, we're going to notice That those four enemies of the church are going to be destroyed in reverse order. So it's going to be first the harlot of Babylon, and then the false prophet, and then the beast, and then finally the dragon. So all that comes, but the seven bold judgments of wrath must come first. Now I have to remind you one more time, and I feel important to do so. As we work through the book of Revelation, please don't make the mistake of thinking that this book is merely a chronological sequential series of events that we can kind of figure out and map out on some sort of a timeline. I think that's a mistake. I really do. I think that the book of Revelation largely are these these pictures, these images, these visions that John is giving us, which sometimes stack and sometimes layer, which together contribute to describe these major themes of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption in Christ, In future judgment to come. So uh, let's not try to figure out these things too carefully as though we're able to discern the timeline of God such that we're going to be the first people to correctly predict the events of the eschaton in order. I think that's a a bit of a mistake and we don't want to make that today. All right? So, uh, with that in mind, let me share with you several things about God's wrath here from this passage as we prepare for next week's beginning of the bold judgment that David will lead us through, Lord willing. I want to give you three aspects to the wrath of God here. So if you're going to take notes, this would be the outline. First, we're going to look at the source of God's wrath here in this text, especially verses 5 and 6. Then I'm going to maybe surprise you a little bit with the means of God's wrath, something that surprised me even as I was preparing for this message. And then finally, I want to finish finish up with the theme of the inevitability Of the wrath of God. That is to say, it cannot be avoided. There's no way around it. And that's very clear, especially in verse 8. Okay, so with that in mind, Bibles open, let's start with number one here, the source of God's wrath. Now look carefully at the pictures that he gives us here in verse 5 and verse 6. Some of this is familiar language, but we have to kind of picture it to see what's happening here. The source of God's wrath that he's describing in verses 5 and 6 is actually his holiness. His holiness is the source of his wrath. Now, let's put this together, looking at the pictures that John gives us. Look at verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tents of witness in heaven was opened, verse 6, and out of the sanctuary, notice this language of coming out of the sanctuary, came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. Now, there's a lot of different pictures there in those two verses But what I want you to see in this is the idea that God's wrath comes out of his holiness. His wrath is like the outpouring or the application of his holiness. Now let's just go through the imagery here. The first thing that he says is that there's something of the the temple or the tabernacle that's being depicted here, even in heaven. And we're told in the book of Hebrews, this shouldn't surprise us, that the temple and the tabernacle are something like typological figurings of what heaven itself is like. And so think back with me just for a moment of the temple or the tabernacle structure in the Old Testament. What did we have? We had this idea of concentric revealings of God's holiness. So starting with the outside, you had the outer courts, right, which were in some respect the least holy place. And then coming inward, there was this holy place and then even more so the most holy place in which nobody could enter but the high priest and not even once a year. And what was in the most holy place? Well, you had within it the ark itself, which you might even say is the mostest holiest place. This, right? It's really where the holiness of God is consigned in the ark of the testimony. And I think that's why the ESV messes up a little bit here. Now, I don't want to critique the translators because they do an excellent job in the ESV, but I'd wish they had translated this the tent of testimony, as the New King James does, rather than the tent of witness. And the only little quibble, the only reason I bring that up at all is because the idea of the tent of testimony is actually the more common Old Testament language. When we go back to, for instance, uh, the book of Exodus or the book of Leviticus, we'll very often read of the tents of the testimony. Rather than the tent of witness, though I get it, the Greek word marturion or marturios, it means the same thing witness or testimony so technically the ESV is right but but here's why I think this matters just a little bit is remember inside the most holy place you have the ark which is called the ark of testimony so I like that language here the ark of testimony and the ark of testimony contained within it what do you remember the 10 commandments and so there's the very holy law of God within this ark of testimony and interestingly we've actually talked about this once before The ark is something of a sign, both of the law, because it contains the Ten Commandments, but also the gospel, remember, because it was that the ark, the hilasterion, the mercy seat of the ark itself, in which propitiation or atonement was made. Now, if you've kind of lost the picture here, let's just gather it up for a second. I want you to see this, that what John is describing is that this wrath, these bulls of God's anger are coming outward from inward. Does everybody see the trajectory there? the wrath is coming outward from inward and what is inward well the most holy place of god's absolute righteousness his total moral purity uprightness and goodness and so we can say something like this and this is very important to our theology of wrath that the wrath of god is the application of his holiness the wrath of god is the overflow of his holiness the wrath of God is his holiness in practice, let's put it that way, as he judges the sin of the world. And so John is giving us here a picture of his holiness coming, I'm sorry, his wrath coming outward from his holiness. Does that make sense? It actually is a really clear picture once you begin to visualize what's happening here. And that's why the angels that are coming out, they're bearing this. Notice this too when you look very carefully at the language. The angels are described as clothed in pure white linen. Well, what is that? Obviously, signs of holiness. They're coming outward with these bulls with golden sashes around their waist. And we've already seen that language before in Revelation. Christ himself is the one who is described as having these these golden holy sashes here. So the image is very clear. It's not even a controversy at all, really. God's wrath is coming out from the holy ark of his absolute moral perfection and his glory. You see that picture there? So his wrath is like the overflow of his holiness. Now, you, you may be objecting here a little bit, and I'll, let's tease this out. You may say to yourself, okay, I don't get it though. How is a loving God so full of wrath? Good question. Glad you asked. Well, you see, uh, God is a loving God, and there's no question about that, and I certainly would never dispute that. The Bible says God is love. It's one of his foremost attributes as it's described in the Bible. But you have to understand, what is it that God loves when we describe him as a loving God? Well, he loves you, no question about that. Loves me too, praise God. Loves the world that he's made, yes? As creator, yes, truly he does. But please understand that when we talk about God being a loving God, all of that is true, but do not neglect the fact that the thing that he loves the most it's His own glory. He loves His own holy glory, which is why the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the, the, the Father, and the Spirit loves them both. In the Bible, everywhere and throughout, Old Testament and New Testament, God loves His own glory. He loves His name. He loves His honor. And whenever His name and His honor is besmirched. He rises up, as it were, in fury because he will not stand to see his holiness or his glory diminished by sinful men. That cannot be. His wrath is the application of the fury of his holiness. Those two things are not in contradiction with one another. Now, maybe you ask again, and I'll I'll entertain another question. How can God be described as having joy, then, if he's also a God full of wrath? Well, again, similar answer. Uh, Please understand, when we're talking about the joy of God, and there are a number of passages that describe God as having joy, and the wrath of God, please understand, we're not talking about emotions like human beings have emotions. That's not what we mean by his joy or his wrath. Um, See, you and I, um, we experience emotions. We have swings of the tide of our emotions. You're in a good mood today. You're in a bad mood tomorrow. Well, what happened? Well, maybe your blood sugar's low for goodness sakes. Maybe you need a snack. Maybe you need a rest. Maybe you need a break. Maybe you're bored. And so human beings, we experience these swings of emotion that we call moods. Now you have to understand, the Holy Lord God Almighty does not experience mood swings. He does not. That would violate the attribute of his immutability. He is unchangeable. God is always eternally constant. So how is it then that God is described as sometimes being joyful and sometimes being filled with wrath? It's not that he has emotions or moods. It's that God has what we might call eternal dispositions. Okay? He's always disposed eternally to his own glory. He loves the glory and honor of his own name and he should because that is the highest value of all things. And God is always and eternally disposed against sin, which dishonors that same glory. And it's not as though God switches back and forth between good mood and bad mood, joy and wrath. It's that God is eternally and always predisposed to his glory and likewise to anything that would dishonor his holy name. And so the first point that I want you to understand this morning from verses 5 and 6 is that when we see the wrath of God being poured out, this is the function of the application of his own holiness, which is his absolute moral purity and true uh, perfect goodness. Okay, So we see that, I think, in verses 5 and 6 as it's pictured very vividly here in this language. Now, here, here's a bit of a surprise, at least for me as I was preparing for this message. I want you to look secondly at the means Of the wrath of God in verse 7, the means of the wrath of God. Um, Look at this, verse 7. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Two thoughts jump out to me from verse seven. The first is that I'm even more sure of my interpretation of verses five and six when I read verse seven. How am I more sure? Because look what it just said. The golden bulls of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. His eternality is the same way of describing his immutability. He does not change ever. No time, no circumstances, no eons, no ages. God's eternal dispositions, his eternal essential glory is always the same and never changes. Verse 7 only underscores what we just learned from verses 5 and 6. But here's what I think is a little bit surprising and something I wouldn't have predicted in verse 7. Notice this, that it says, the living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God. Now, if you have a Bible in your hands, uh, let's say it's a study Bible or a reference Bible or something like that, a good reference Bible will have a little indicator that this verse connects back with another verse earlier in the book of Revelation, and here comes the surprise. You see, golden bulls have actually been mentioned once before. This is not new language for us who've been studying the book of Revelation. Where do you recall, before I say it, do you know? Where do you recall golden bulls being mentioned once before in the book of Revelation? Anybody remember? How good your memory? Flip back with me to chapter 5. I want you to see this language of golden bulls. And I think here that there is, in fact, a strong connection here and that the study Bibles and the cross-references are right to point out this little link between our chapter, chapter 15, all the way back to chapter 5, verse 8. Let's pick it up, though, one verse earlier in verse 7. This is that great scene where the seven seals are about to be unfurled. Look at verse 7. Of chapter 5. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, look at this, a harp and what? And golden bowls full of incense, which are, here we go, the prayers of the saints. Hmm. Hmm. What do you make of that? The golden bowls here are something of a beautiful, vivid picture of the prayers of the saints in two ways. First, that gold is precious, and God views the prayers of his people as precious to him. Second, with this sweet-smelling metaphor of incense rising up to him, an incense that is beautiful and pleasing and pure in his nostrils. Now, here's the connection here. There is, I think... A connection between the prayers of God's people calling out for justice in this life and the response of God now as he's going to pour out his wrath and the seven bowls that are going to come in chapter 16. Let me make that connection explicit. When we as believers, when we see the ugliness of the world around us, when we are disturbed rightly by sin, as it exists in our own society, or as it exists in our own hearts. We are provoked by that sin. We are provoked by that unrighteousness. We are provoked by the wickedness of our day, or the wickedness in our own minds and in our hearts and in our actions. And what do we believers do as a response? We call out to God in these prayers of justice that we see in chapter 5. And so even as the unbelieving world is harsh to the church and is persecuting the church and it condemns the church and mocks the church and mocks the lamb and mocks the message, yet God's people, our response to all this is not to fight back. What do we do? We pray for the justice of God to come. And all of this time, it seemed to us, doesn't it? It seems... As though God has been silent, as though we've been crying out for mercy and justice. God, please help us and help our people. Lord, why are you doing nothing about the evil that we see in our day? Like Habakkuk crying out in the book of Habakkuk, right? And yet all this time, what's been happening is that God is hearing the prayers of his people and he's storing up his wrath. And now, as an application or the function of his holiness, he is going to now reply to those prayers of God's people as he pours out his wrath on the wickedness of the world in chapter 16. That's what's happening here. Now maybe you're saying to yourself, let me obtain, uh, or uh, entertain another objection here, well, that's a lot about wrath. Yeah, I know. You say, well, I don't want the Bible to be about wrath. Okay, but, but it is. And there's a lot about the wrath of God in the Scriptures. And I would, I would reply to you that you don't understand the nature of God or the message of the gospel unless you first of all understand what it is that God has a holy and righteous anger against sin. Um, if you were to see a mirror of a city, let's say, whose citizens routinely vandalize the city and tear up the city and commit heinous crimes in the streets, and if that mayor Well, it's kind of becoming a reality, isn't it, today? And if that mayor refuses to finally do something about the wickedness of the city, what would you say about that mayor? Well, you'd say he ought to be deposed. He ought to be voted out. It's the same thing for God. If God did not have a day of justice in which he brings righteousness back to the streets of his creation, you could hardly call him a just God. Could you? Or think of a judge in a courtroom scene. If the judge routinely dismissed serious and heinous charges of those who were brought before his court, he simply dismissed them on a whim as though he didn't care, as though he looked at everything that came before him and simply said, meh, who cares? What would you say about such a judge? You would say he is not a truly just judge and he has no right to rule in his courtroom. But it's also true with God. Uh, You see, God, in order for him to be just, he must have the attribute of wrath he must bring evil to its timely comeuppance it must be so and it will and chapter 16 is going to confirm that to us and i would just say to you by the way if i can press you a little bit on this if you don't mind if you are not crying out for justice if you are not rightly disturbed by the things that you see in our nation today If if your heart is not provoked like the Apostle Paul, remember when he goes to Athens and he sees the idols of his own time? What does it say? It says his heart was provoked. And I just want to put this back on you, and I want to say, if you can watch the news, if you can see what's happening in the schools today, if you see what's happening in our families today, if you're watching the breakdown of our civilization, if you're seeing the lies and the propaganda that they're foisting upon our children, and your heart is not rightly provoked, such as that you are lifting up these golden bowls of the incense of the prayers of the saints to God crying out for justice, if you're not provoked by these things, then I push it back on you and I say, well, is the Spirit of God even in you That. Am I pushing too hard? If you're not disturbed and crying out with these golden bowls of the incense of the prayers of the saints asking God to bring justice to the world, then I sincerely question whether or not the Spirit of God is moving in your heart. You've been wondering about the spitball incident of 1985, haven't you? I'll tell you. It was Nate Habeck's fault, not me. Uh, Third grade, Nate is shooting spitballs up into the lights in the cafeteria. Disgusting, isn't it? Really bothersome to me. And and what happened is as Nate was shooting these spitballs up into the lights, some of them would start to fall down. And that really, really bothered me. Fall down on the table fall down near my lunch? I just had to fill out that story for you. Sorry about that. Third, the inevitability of God's wrath. Look at verse 8. Let's finish up here. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary, mark this word, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now I want you to mark the word until here because I think this is a key word. There's a sense of inevitability happening here that nothing is going to stop now what we're going to see uh, transpire in chapter 16. Mark also the word plagues. This is also an interesting word here because the word plagues harkens us back to what? Well, the plagues of the Old Testament. And there's clearly a a strong connection here. In fact, um, I am not going to be with you next Lord's Day or the week after. I'll be in, the Peru, in Peru on the mission trip. Pastor David, uh, there you are. Can I give you an assignment, sir? Uh, I'm going to, just, uh, I don't usually do this. I want you to fill out for us, if you can, the connection between the trumpets and, and the bowls because the trumpet judgments, which we already went through, are very similar to the bowl judgments, which we're going to see next week lot of strong parallelism there. In fact, if anything, the bulls are something like a reinforcement of the trumpets because the trumpet judgments, they talked about a third of the sea or a third of the land. Now we're going to see the bulls come with full force. So David, if you could do that for us next week, make that connection clear. The other thing, too, that we have to see here is that there is something of a connection here between trumpets and bulls and the plagues in the book of Exodus. That's impossible to avoid. Notice as we go through this, and David, if you could point this out as well, uh, that the bull judgments as well as the trumpets, there's something something like they're modeled on the plagues of Exodus chapter 7 to 12. They really are. The the language is very clear. And and why do I bring that up? Well, to say this um, many of our dispensationalist friends who are futurist in their interpretation of Revelation. They very often debate amongst themselves about the question of whether or not the church, hang with me here, is going to be removed before the wrath of God comes. Have you heard debates about this in theological circles before? And and sometimes they'll, they'll, uh, they'll give and take a little bit. Some will say the church is removed by the rapture before the wrath of God comes. Others say, no, the church has to go through the entire thing. Others will kind of split the difference and say three and a half years, three and a half years, But I I think here that uh, it's better to think as the Reformed do. You see, we don't separate the rapture from the return of Christ. For us, the rapture is at the return of Christ. Those are simultaneous events. Christ calls up the church as he comes down to judge the world. We don't separate the rapture and the return. And this is very helpful to think how, about how, in fact, the plagues were poured out in the book of Exodus, right? Because if I were to ask, let's say I were to interview Moses, and I were to say, Moses, was the church exempt from the plagues of Egypt? What do you think Moses would say? Good question, right? Was the church exempt from the plagues of Egypt? Well, on one hand, yes, because they marked the doors of their households with the blood of the Lamb. And the frogs and the boils and the death of the firstborn did not come upon the people of God. And so, in one sense, Moses would say, well, of course, God spared the church, the people of God, from the plagues, which was the wrath of God against Pharaoh. On the other hand, if I asked you this, if I said it this way, Moses, was the time of the plagues difficult? Well, clearly he would say yes to that as well. Of course it was difficult. Didn't you read? They chased us all the way up to the Red Sea. And then God split the sea and delivered his people through on dry ground. I think there's something like that happening here with the bull judgments wherein the people of God may experience very difficult hardships and trials, even as they are spared from the blunt edge, the bludgeoning edge of the wrath of God against the sin of the world. Okay, I hope that makes sense. It's almost like God covers us with one hand as he pours out his wrath with the other hand. So there's a sense in which the church will have to go through very arduous times, but here's the, here's the difference. What is sanctifying for us is judgment for them. The very thing that brings punishment upon the unbelievers is that which actually sanctifies us and causes us to be stronger even as we endure hardship in the very midst. Okay? So there's a real sense in which the plagues of Egypt are a very strong parallel to how we will have to endure the hardships as God begins to, uh, to reveal his great this pleasure. Now the final thing I'm going to say, and we're going to go to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, I promise, is I do want to emphasize one more time in verse 8. Notice this language. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. See the inevitability? There's no way into the temple, but through wrath. So, so either This this ends up being sort of an either-or here, right? Either you will experience the wrath of God come crashing down on your life because of hardened, unrepentant, recalcitrant hearts, or, contrarily, Christ will have gone through the wrath of God for you in Calvary at his cross. If the wrath of God has already been poured out for you in the cross at Calvary, there is no wrath coming for you hardship possibly wrath certainly not you've been delivered from it through your mediator and your savior